Lord, we pray that you would show us great things from your word today. Lord, I ask you to use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let us be challenged by the truth of your word today. Let all the preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May everything that's said and done bring honor and glory to you and you alone, for you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask, and all God's people said, amen. So if you'll recall, Dinah was the 11th child born to Jacob. So, you know, this soon-to-be family of five of ours is still pretty small in retrospect, comparison. By the way, I did look up some statistics the other day. In 1800, the average, average family had seven children. Average. And some of that was because many of them didn't live past two or three or four. And we take it for granted today. And we should be bowing down and singing the doxology and thanking God for the time we live in when we have things like antibiotics. But Jacob and his family come back to the land of Canaan. They lived near Shechem at this time. And Dinah, remember, if you'll recall, was raped by Shechem, the man the city was named after. And that gives us a really complicated situation He was the prince of the land and really the most eligible bachelor. And to further complicate the matter, after raping her, Shechem loves Dinah. By the way, I looked that word up in the Hebrew because I thought, well, maybe it means he's just attracted to her erotically. No, it's actually the same word that you could say for Jesus loving the disciples. He loved her deeply. Now we've got a situation Shechem loves Dinah so much, he wants to marry her, and part of that would have been trying to retain her honor. So he gets his dad, he goes out to Jacob and the family, he confesses to what's happened, and he says, give me this girl to be my wife. This is the most eligible bachelor of the land, and remember, this is before the Mosaic, this is 400 years before the Mosaic Law. Okay, so there's no prohibition for um, marrying, for example, Shechem. There's no prohibition yet, okay? So if he wanted to, Jacob could have certainly given his daughter to Shechem in marriage and would have, he would not have been sinning, okay? Obviously, it wouldn't have been ideal, but he could have done it if he wanted to. And maybe he wanted to, we don't know. Jacob and Dinah don't get the chance to talk that one out, though, because Dinah's brothers become quite angry and they hatch a revenge plot. Simeon and Levi were her full brothers. Remember, we've got a whole big family. Jacob's got 12 kids, but they're by different moms. And so there's a a real difference between full brothers and half brothers in this culture. You with me? There's a real big difference between this is actually my full brother, same dad, same mom in this culture, and this is my half brother, same dad, but different mom. You're from the same mom, you're full brothers. Well, these guys are her brothers, which means they've been raised in the same tent by the same mom and the same maids and nurses and such their whole lives. They are very, very close. They're not about to stand for their sister being defiled. Trust me, I get it. I've got a sister, I've got a couple of daughters, 
I get it. But what we're going to see is they take matters far beyond the crime fitting the punishment. They hatch a plan. It's a revenge plan. Levi and Simeon, her full brothers, trick the men of Shechem into being circumcised. And remember, the men of Shechem think that they're going to come into covenant with these, these men, this, this family. And so they go along with the plan. They all become circumcised. And while these men are sore from that, while they can't move, Simeon and Levi and probably some of their servants with them come into the city and slaughter everybody. Every man. All of them. Then, as if it wasn't bad enough, the other sons of Jacob come into the city with them and they plunder it. They take off all the possessions, the women, the small children. They just It's like a raiding party. You tell me that the barbarian Viking hordes were so terrible. And they were. And I'll point you to this and say, so were the sons of Jacob. I told you last time that this kind of revenge, where the punishment far exceeds the crime, would eventually be bounded up by the Mosaic Law. The saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, has done a lot for the advancement of civilization and culture in the world. A lot. That's Leviticus 24, by the way. If you want to know where that's at, it's Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24 would eventually give righteous boundaries concerning retribution and revenge. It would prescribe an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you wronged your brother and it cost him an eye, then your eye was going to be taken as well. Why? Because that's exactly fair. It is, in fact, just. It is not just to have another standard. I was reading an article a couple days ago about one state, I think it was Maryland, where they were saying, well, you know, people that are young can't really fully comprehend their crime, and so we should pass a law that says if you're less than 25 years old, you can't be guilty of felony murder. The more bound you give to sin, the more sin you'll have. God will command, eventually through the Mosaic Law, 400 years later, God will command punishment that fits the crime. The Latin term for that, I told you last time, is lex talionis. That's an eye for an eye. And that's what Leviticus 24, verses 19 through 20 is all about. It's the governing of the boundaries of retribution. The whole reason God puts it in is so that when someone does someone else wrong, they won't be revenged back by the family far beyond what the crime or what, far beyond the punishment that the crime really does meet. Does that make sense? And that's what we see here. What was the crime? The defiling of Dinah. That's a crime. There's no doubt about it. There is a just punishment. But the just punishment is not to go into the village and kill every single man in the entire village because Dinah was defiled. Why would they do that, though? I really want you to think about this. Why would they do that? They didn't do it just because they're impulsive. Listen, they they were not impulsive. They weren't. They were very shrewd. They were thinking like a warrior would think. I'm sure the original plan was, listen, we're going to get Shechem. He's going to die for this. And they realized, now wait a minute, time out. He's the prince of the land. If we go into town and we sneak into this guy's tent and we kill him, 
it won't be very long before all the other men of the town come back out for us. So you know what? We'll just get them at the front. We'll just punch twice. We'll kill Shechem, and then we'll kill all of the people in the town that might come for revenge on us later. And that's what they do. They think in a warlike fashion. (coughs) They go and kill Shechem, and then to forego any chance of a counterattack by Shechem's friends or his family or the others that know him, they just kill them all. In essence, they mete out the death penalty to an entire village because of the sin of one man. Please do not tell me that's just. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Later on, in fact, Jacob has this to say about the anger of Simeon and Levi. Later on in Genesis chapter 49, remember, he's blessing his children in chapter 49 before he dies. And this is what he says (coughs) about Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. When you're reading that, you think, yeah, duh, obviously they're brothers. No, they're brothers. They're full brothers. They're raised in the same house by the same mom and the same dad. They're brothers. They're both born of Leah, like Dinah. He goes on to say this, Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, do not be joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung the oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, because it's cruel. In other words, they're not just men. goes on to say, I will divide them in Jacob and I'll scatter them in Israel. And that's what he does. There's more that can be said about that, but we don't have time. So, to make a long story short, that brings us basically to the end of chapter 35. Remember, Jacob was very much upset at this because he was a little bit afraid of retribution. When everybody around here hears what we've done, we'll be targets, guys. That's basically what he says, right? We don't, we don't have a lot of people. You guys may have noticed, you know, this nation of Israel is in embryonic form, right? It's not very big. There's not a lot of fighting-aged males here. And if the other inhabitants of the land hear what we've done and they seek revenge, man, we're in trouble. That's what Jacob is saying. Jacob is one of the, one of the things that kind of characterizes his life is, I hate saying it this way, but he's a little bit milk toast. Okay, he's he's a little soft. That's kind of why God has to take him out to Peyton Ram, you know, toughen him up a little bit. But what we're actually going to see, why, why should he not have been worried about that? Because God had already promised, I'm going to watch over you. I'm the one taking care of you. I just proved it just back there when you met Esau. Nonetheless, okay, so that brings us to Genesis 35. Let's get into that. There's so much here. Genesis 35 is actually a pretty short chapter, and you'd think it's short and like to the point, and yet there's so much going on. I don't even know if I'll get all the way through it. I might only get the first 15 verses or so. I told Reagan that this morning. It's like, there is so much here. I don't know if I'm going to get through it. I've got to get through a chapter. I'm never going to get through the book of Genesis. And she was like, if, if it takes two times, then it takes two times. The goal is not to get through it as fast as possible. The goal is teaching God's word to God's people. You know, it's one of those like, ah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, all right. Good reminder, yeah. So, we may only get halfway through it. Let's get into it. Chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. 
Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. There is so much in here. Make an altar there. Okay, one verse, there are four imperatives. That's a, that's a good word to know, by the way. What's an imperative? It's when God gives a command. He's not giving a suggestion. He's not asking you for counsel. He's saying, this is what you do. You obey me. <clears throat> okay, what are those four things? He tells Jacob, get up. Right, because Jacob is he's kind of wallowing in his own depression at the time. Look at what you guys have done. You've screwed this whole thing up. God's saying, get up. Go. Get up and go. Where are we going? To Bethel. We say Bethel, but really the, the word is Bethel, if you want to get all technical, because it's actually a combination of words in the Hebrew. Bait, which we get Beth from. Bait is the root word, which means house. And El, which is a shortened form of Elohim, the word for God. So Bethel is the house of God, or the dwelling place of God. So God says to Jacob, hey, Jacob, get up. You shouldn't be here anyway. Shouldn't be camped here, dwelling here. Remember, 20 years ago, you crossed over the Jordan. You made a, a vow to me. You're going to come back here. You're coming back there. Get up. Go. Go to Bethel. What are you going to do there? Dwell there. In other words, it's not just an overnight stay. You don't need a motel room. You're going to build a house. God, I just bought property here. Can you imagine if God told us something like that? Can you imagine the fight? I just paid my house off here, God. I got plans for this place. Right? Trust me. If no one else would, I, I would know. I promise you. If God talked to me today, I'd be like, Lord, have you seen how much fence I've built? How much fence I've fixed? How many trees I've planted, trees I've cut down? Lord, I can't. Can I get a minute? Right? God says, get up, go and dwell there. You're moving everything. Listen, that is a big operation. There's lots of cattle here. There's lots of animals. There's lots of people. This is not a small undertaking. And when you get there, make an altar. You think that, uh, you think that maybe struck him? Make an altar? What's the only thing you do with an altar? The only thing you do with an altar, you worship God by sacrifice. Hey, you think you're depressed right now? I want you to go on a really tough journey, and at the end of that journey, give me a bunch of your stuff. Lots of your livestock, kill them. Get up, go, make good on your word. That's tough. It's tough for us. Got a whole bunch of stuff I've got written in my notes, and I just don't have time. So Bethel, remember Bethel was the house of God, and that was what uh, that was. How did he get that name? What was it before? It was Luz before, and then when Jacob came through there, he renamed it. Why? Well, he went through there. Remember, this is back in chapter 28. As he comes through. One night, he lays down, he's got nothing, he's got a stone for a pillow, lays down, and he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a staircase, he sees angels going up and down, and at the top of the staircase is God standing. 
And he wakes up and goes, this is the place of God. This is God's house, God's dwelling place, and I didn't even know about it. And so he names the place Beth-El. Remember that? Today we call it Jacob's Ladder. I don't really know why. Its staircase is better, but maybe it doesn't roll off the tongue as well. I don't know. Jacob is so awestruck and humbled by this divine encounter that he has that he wakes up. Remember, that's chapter 28. He wakes up and he makes a vow before the Lord that day. Now, I want you to take note of that because you have made vows to the Lord. And you know what sometimes we're guilty of? We think God is like us. It's been a long time. Maybe he's forgotten. You know anybody like that? I'll tell you a little story. I've got a welder. Not a person who welds, a machine, right? A welder. Now, I had a student in my class who graduated seven years ago. And uh, he asked if he could borrow my welder that summer. He did. Now, I ran into this same young man who is now a welder by trade. He's got a whole huge trailer, this massive, you know, this tiny little welder that I've got. He's still got it in his garage. I run into him at Walmart a couple weeks ago. It's great to see him. I'm, you know, talking to him and... Little baby's in the cart, and we're talking, and as we're talking, his eyes get real big. He goes, Wilson, I just realized something. I said, what's that, buddy? He goes, I still have something of yours. I said, yeah, you do. And uh, now that you mention it, I was wondering if I could get that back, say, before summer. <laughs> he starts laughing. He's like, I'm so sorry. I totally forgot. It's just been in the garage, and I've forgotten. We do that. We make commitments to people. We make vows. And as time goes on, we can forget. We are forgetful. You know who's not forgetful? God. He does not forget the vows he makes to you. And he doesn't forget the vows you've made to him. So, he doesn't forget Jacob's vow there at Bethel. And what was his vow? Let me read it to you. This is from Genesis 28, 18 through the end of the chapter, 22, I guess. Early in the morning, Jacob got up, took the stone that he'd put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. Now, listen, that's a pillar, not an altar. There's a reason you should take note of that. Pillars serve different functions than altars, and we're going to see both in chapter 35. An altar is where you, for the most part, you kill things. It's where the worship happens. It's where sacrifice is made. But what's a pillar for? You're from Oklahoma. That's what you sleep on at night, right? Hand me that pillar. <laughs> My youngest has that oaky draw, man. It, it cracks me up all the time. Do I need another pillar? <laughs> yes, you do, sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, a pillar, though, was not. For sacrifice and worship, a pillar was for remembrance. What do you do with a pillar? You're setting something out here. It's a memorial. It's so you and others around you will remember what happened here. What happened here was significant. It was important. It was an important encounter I had with God. I've set this memorial. Why? So that he can remember it? You think he's going to forget that? Well, why is it there then? Because it's important for his children to know about it too. And maybe his children's children. This was an important encounter with God. And I want to make sure I know about it and you know about it. And everybody, come over here. Let me tell you about what happened. <coughs> it's our job as parents, as grandparents. 
Part of our job in being godly influences to our family is talking about the things God has done for us. I will not die, but I will live, and I will declare and decree the works of the Lord. That also means the works of the Lord in your life. That really convicted me as I was studying through this, this chapter 35. So we're going to see him set up a pillar for a memorial in chapter 35. And I thought, all this time I very rarely have talked with my own kids about things God has done personally in my life. Times where he answered prayer. Times where he watched out for me and kept me safe. Times where he was doing and working that I, where I could not. So last night, the kids all get in bed, and we have our devotions, and I said, I, I want to tell you a few of these things. So I start telling them some of these stories, and they are fascinated. Dad, t- tell us more. That became the bedtime stories last night. I think you, you may be better than me at this, but if you're not, I think you should make it a point to start doing that. Write them down. Make a book out of them if you have to. Don't let your children, don't let you pass on and be gone in glory and your children not know the great things that God has done for you in your life. You know why? Because you sharing those stories with them builds their faith up too. And Jacob knows that's what's going to happen to his own children. One day I'm going to be gone and they're going to have to face this harsh, tough life, just them and Jesus, just them and God. And they've got to know, you know what? Dad went through something like this and God was with him. God was faithful. And I serve the same God. And God will watch for me too. He'll be faithful to me too. Just like he was to Grandpa. Just like he was to Grandma. Just like he was to Mom and Dad. He'll be with me too. It's a good and godly thing. Back to this. He set up a pillar and poured oil. On the top of it, he called the name of that place Beth-El, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, here it is, saying, if God will be with me and he'll keep me in this way that I go, and he'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone that I've set up for a pillar will be God's house, here it is. And of all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. Full stop. I can talk something about this because I've had prayers like that before. God, I, it wouldn't be a problem for me to be a tither. Just need, I just need, give me more. I want to I give more. I just had more to give. God works in your life. And he opens up financial avenues to you. And all of a sudden you have twice as much money as you once had. And now you're like, I just don't know if I can give a tie. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Show me your giving. I'll show you your priorities. You know, I've never done that as an elder. I don't think any of our elders actually have. I've never actually looked into who gave what. Never looked into the financial records. Maybe I should. Really come down on you. But I am going to get into giving today. I'll warn you right up front. And I feel like one of the ways and one of the reasons I can with a very clean conscience is I, I don't take a salary from the church. I don't even have a stipend. But we still time. 
I'm a dad with four children, one on the way, with a stay-at-home mom. And we've always tithed. And there have been times where it was tight because of that. I've been tested in that. And I'm not going to sit here and beat you over the head over tithing. But I'll tell you this, I've, I've always done it. I don't know why. I guess I just kind of had this knowledge early on. I mean, I can remember when I first got saved, literally the next week was the first time I ever wrote a tithe check. I, I, I guess I just kind of knew from the beginning. Now, I get into arguments about this all the time. People get angry with me. You can't show me any place the New Testament says I've got a tithe. That's true. That's true. Also can't find any place in the New Testament that says you can't marry your dog. That therefore mean it's okay, it's valid. No, there are some things that you know simply by reading the Old Testament. There are some things that are assumed you would know simply by reading the Old Testament. It is true. I cannot tell you that you have to give a tithe in the New Testament. It's true. I can tell you it was going on in the early church. I can tell you it's a tradition that's continued since the days of Abraham. And it was not part of the Mosaic Law. So I have a lot of people who tell me, well, that's part of the Mosaic Law, and so when Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic Law, it's gone. No, it didn't start with the Mosaic Law. It was 400 years earlier with Abraham, literally the father of the faith. And every single patriarch did it as well. So you can make the argument that I'm only doing it because of tradition. And in, in that case, I'll say, well, I'm standing in a pretty good line of tradition then. Nonetheless, I can remember once I was, <laughs> once I was really poor. And, one, and more than once that I was really poor. I can remember early on, though, when I had very, very little, that um, I got my check at the end of the week, and I knew I'll either have enough to tithe that first, or I'll be able to buy groceries this week. And I knew, I, I know that sounds crazy, but I knew in my heart, I knew this is a test for me. And so I literally took my check and I wrote out a tithe check and I went down to the church offices and dropped it off. That was on a Monday. And the reason I did was I knew if I sit around here till Wednesday, I'll talk myself out of this. So I did. And I didn't say a word to anybody. I just gave it because I knew that's what the Lord wants me to do. What's the number one priority for me? What's the number one priority for my money? Is it me or is it the Lord? And so I took it down. And I prayed, man. I prayed that night. I was like, Lord, I'm going to be, I'm going to be eating pretty slim this week. You know, at my work, I've, I've told this story before, but at my work, they had free coffee bar and they had like cream and sugar and stuff. And I thought, you know what? I can get enough of that. I can kind of keep going this week, right? You can make it seven days without food. So that's what I'm thinking in my head. That ne- so I went to work that next day. I didn't say a word to anybody. I did have a lot of cream and sugar in my coffee that day. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> Just worked through lunch. And I got home and I was praying that night. And uh, a little old lady in our church pulls up. She knocks on the door. She says, hey, brother. How you doing? I said, hey, fine. Hey, what's going on? You know? And she says, well, I was, down, I was down shopping for groceries. And I just really felt like the Lord told me he wanted me to buy your groceries this week. Right? And I was just like, sister, you heard Jesus. She had this pickup bed, and she had groceries in there. And, you know, I just thanked her, and I didn't tell her everything that was going on. I was like, that was, I'm, I'm, thank you so much. You really, the Lord used you to really meet a need, you know, and kind of downplayed it. And she left, and I just wept. 
Why? Because the God of all heaven had seen my need and he'd provided. He'd shown me, no, he's El Shaddai. He's the one that's over it all. He was higher than my check from work. He was the provider. Up to this point in chapter 35, at least so far as we know from the text, Jacob has, as of yet, never made good on this promise that he vowed to God back in chapter 28. And that's going to become the theme of chapter 35. By this point in the book of Genesis, we know for certain that God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his people. Of course, the ultimate expression of his faithfulness comes in Jesus Christ, as you know. We know that God's faithfulness to fulfill his word is not in question. But you know what is in question? God is looking back at Jacob and saying, Are you faithful, though, to me? I've kept my word to you. Will you keep your word to me? God's faithfulness is not in question. But the one who says he's God's servant, his faithfulness to God is now in question. Will you do what you have vowed or not? You've come back into the promised land. I mean, this is kind of the underlying test. You've come back into the promised land. You said when you did, you were going to do all this stuff. You were going to make this sacrifice. You've been in the promised land for years now. No sacrifice. Hey, Jacob, time for you to make promise. Time for you to make good on this promise that you made. And that's the theme that I think you're going to be challenged by today. God's faithfulness is not in question, but the faithfulness of God's servant is. And Jacob, for all of his faults and failures, is going to come through. Jacob has been given a new heart, and it shows. Jacob is going to demonstrate his faithfulness to God through four major ways. And I hope these points of action and application will challenge you this very same way today. So let's get back to it. Verse 2, Jacob said to his household, remember, immediately he hears God tell him, get up, go, dwell there, make an altar. And the first thing he does is he gets up, he goes to his household, his, the people in his house, and he says to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Verse 3, then let us arise and go up to Beth El. So that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. The God who's been with me wherever I've gone. In other words, we're going up to Bethel so I can sacrifice, so I can be faithful to the God who's been faithful to me. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Man, there's so much in here. But, number one, here's point number one. Here's demonstration number one from Jacob. How does Jacob demonstrate his devotion, his faithfulness to God? The first way, how do you demonstrate your devotion, your faithfulness to God? The first way, by your holiness. I'm going to let that sink in. Because we live in a culture that hates holiness. And I don't mean the pagan people out there. I mean church culture. 
We live in a culture where people will go to church, and if you just so much as dare mention that maybe we should be living lives set apart to the Lord, not like the rest of the world, people lose their mind. How dare you, you legalist? That term gets thrown around a lot by people who obviously don't mean or know what it means. Legalism is when you think your works save you. If you think that you being holy is what saves you, if you living a certain way is what's saved you, you keeping these laws saves you, then yes, you are a legalist. Much like the Pharisees. But holiness is not a suggestion from God. It's a command. In fact, the scripture says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The first way that you show your devotion to the Lord is through your holiness. What does that word mean? Part of the reason that we have so little holiness in the church in America is because we don't even know what that word means. Holy means to be set apart to the Lord. You made a vow to God. Remember when you were baptized? What is baptism? Well, in essence, it's you making a vow to God. You're saying, my old life is dead. I no longer have the right to control how I live. I no longer have the right to be my own boss. You're now the boss. You get to make the rules for my life. If you think Jesus has forgotten that vow, you're outside your mind. He knows you made that vow, and he's going to tell you it's time to fulfill it. I just don't understand. Got this fun time with my men. It's a lot of fun to sit back with the boys and mow through a 12-pack. That might be a lot of fun. And it might be that God is now standing in front of you saying, it's time for you to fulfill your vow to me. You vowed to be holy. You vowed to live a life set apart to me, to my glory. And you're still wanting to retain control. It's my life. I live like I want. No, it's not. It's not your life. If you're born again, baptized, disciple of Christ, it's his life. It's not yours. You don't own you. You've been bought with a price. You were once a slave to sin. Now let me let you in on a little secret. You're still a slave. You've been bought with a price and you're now a slave unto righteousness. You're a slave to the Lord. He gets to decide how you live. No, I don't get to go back and take control because it's my life. No, he is the master. You demonstrate your devotion to God through your holiness. We could point out that at this point, obviously, Jacob's leadership has probably faltered a little bit. Because, I mean, the whole reason he's having to tell him, hey, take out the earrings and put away the foreign gods is because he's tolerated them to this point, right? It's kind of a failure of leadership, right? That's what the earrings are all about. Perhaps it's just been too long since Jacob heard from God. You know what? We do the same thing, right? That's a common theme that you're going to see very, very commonly in the lives of the patriarchs. 
is they'll have an encounter with the Lord, and, and they, really, they really get jazzed about it, right? They're serious about, hey, just had an encounter with God. This is awesome. I've got to purify myself. I've got, to, I've got to do what the Lord wants of me, what he commands of me. And they start walking strong. And then as the years go by, kind of slip back into their old ways. You know, that, that encounter with the Lord becomes kind of a past memory. It's, it's far enough in the past now. It's a little foggy. And then what happens? God announces himself to them again. He meets up with them again. And they get really serious about it. And they, they purify themselves again, and they start walking strong again. It, it's, it's a constant theme in the lives of the patriarchs. You know who else it's a constant theme in the life of? Us. We are forgetful. We'll get serious and passionate and zealous about the Lord. And then we'll just kind of get into the motions. You're prone to that cycle too. But here's the good news. <laughs> the good news is, as a New Testament saint... God's given you two weapons in that spiritual battle that the patriarchs did not have. One, you have the living word of God. You can come and encounter God every day. They didn't have that. Jacob didn't have that. Two, you have the weekly assembly with the other saints of God. Folks, I don't think you realize... How important that is. I'm not saying the assembly of the saints is important so you can hear me preach. Because quite frankly, probably the majority of the ministry that happens on a Sunday is not out of this pulpit. It's out of members of the body sharing, loving, and caring with each other. It's what every joint supplies where two members' lives touch. Where bones come together, that's a joint. And Ephesians says, by what every joint supplies, that is what causes growth of the body. Why do you need to be here? Why is it not the same just to listen to a live stream? Because there's no fellowship at the live stream. Okay? Nobody's, you can watch whatever sermon by whoever you want to on YouTube, or you can get on their podcast, or whatever. Teaching is not the end all of all the ministry that happens in the assembly of the saints. And we need that. The other thing that happens with the assembly of the saints is, you know what, if you kind of are losing your zeal, you know what happens when you rub up against another Christian that still has that fire? It stokes yours, doesn't it? You go home and you're like, God, they're so on fire. I want to be like that. I remember when I was like that. What's wrong with me? God, I've got to get zealous about you again. I've got to be passionate about you again. Return to me that flame. Do you think that's a prayer God will overlook? Look, as soon as I see the zeal beginning to wane in the life of one, one of God's precious saints, I want to find out why, and I'll start poking and prodding. And typically, not always, there are other things, but typically, very often, you can trace it to the neglect of one of those two things. Maybe they just got too busy. Just, I mean, I haven't been reading my Bible like I need to be. I haven't really been spending time with God like I should. Or maybe it's, it's kind of like an engine, you know, when it starts missing... You know there's problems with the engine, right? And the same thing, maybe it's, well, I can only be at church, you know, once a month, twice a month. Well, that has an effect on you. You may not realize it. It may not be, you know, at, at first you may not realize it. It may take a while, but it will have an effect on you. 
Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says this. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. That's one of the reasons that you're here. To encourage one another. To stir up one another to love and good works. That's a weapon that you have in this fight against this forgetfulness that we have. I hope that's what today will be for you. Back to our text, though. Back to Jacob. Look at what he says to his family here. Look how he says it. It's an imperative. It's a command. Right? We pointed out that he's been maybe a little too lax up to this point. He's allowed idolatry to creep into the camp. And he's more or less tolerated it up to now. But now he's saying, nope, that's done. He's got a fresh encounter with the Lord. He is renewed in his commitment and his devotion to the Lord. Listen, if that's you as a father... Let today be that day. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're thinking about your own kids and you go, you know what, I've tolerated some things I shouldn't have tolerated. I've got to get more in the game. Okay, do that. I've done that before. I've literally said, okay, we're going to have a family meeting, <clears throat> get all the kids together, and I say, you know what, I, I've been thinking some, um, some more about this thing. And it, it, I really didn't care for a while, but the more I've thought about it, I've had a check in my spirit about this. I feel like the Lord is saying he doesn't want us to do this. And so I'm putting this away. I know that's probably going to disappoint you. I know that might even make you mad. But I want you to know I'm doing the very best I can to follow the Lord the best I can. And if you have to get mad at me, fine. But in this house, as for me and my house, we'll follow the Lord. Maybe you need to do that. That's okay. So the Lord tells Jacob to go up to Bethel to sacrifice and worship. And the first thing Jacob tells his family is put away the idols. Before they even pack up and hit the trail, get rid of the idols, put away your foreign gods. Why? God did not actually say anything to Jacob about that. Do you notice that? God did not tell Jacob, hey, Jacob, get up, tell your family to put away all their idols, foreign gods, then go to Bethel. He didn't say anything about that. Yet Jacob knew this is implicit to this thing. Jacob knew we're about to go up and build an altar. If God tells me to build an altar, we're about to have worship and sacrifice. And if we're going to have worship and sacrifice, you better be pure before the Lord. I want you to think about this. Why is holiness, and specifically the holiness of God's people, such a big deal to God? I mean, do you, do you think he's worried about maybe being corrupted by our sin? Hey, you guys need to purify yourself. Because if you come into my presence and bring that sin, I'm going to get polluted by it. There really are people who know God so little that they truly think that. They think, well, God can't have sin in his presence. Why? Well, he's holy. So? Well, he's holy. He can't have sin in his presence. Yeah, 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 you've established that. Why? Listen, God's command of holiness has nothing to do with him. God is perfectly holy. He's also immutable. It means he's never changing. He, he is in no danger of being polluted or corrupted by sin. You are. 
He's not worried about being affected by our moral filth. Sin poses no danger to God. So why is it such a big deal to him then, especially as it concerns his people? Because sin makes God a very real danger to us. Sin makes God a very real danger to humans. If we were to approach him in all of his holiness and perfection, in all of our unrighteousness and imperfection, his holy justice would flash forth and consume us in the blink of an eye. God's holy fire would break out and consume us in a heartbeat. God's holiness codes are not about protecting him. They're a protective measure for his people. They were protecting us from him. Certainly not the other way around. I think we're in danger of forgetting that fact at times. I think we're also in danger of forgetting the fact that if it weren't for the pure, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to you, you could only approach him once. Put it that way, right? You'd be done. Your holiness must be perfect. Well, you're not perfect. Your heart is not pure. So how in the world can I approach God through Jesus Christ? I must be in Christ, covered with his righteousness. Holiness is simply a part of our new life in Christ. It's part of our sanctification. God literally tells us to be holy as he is holy. He tells us in Ephesians 5 to be imitators of God. He is holy. Be holy like me. You demonstrate your devotion to God by the holiness with which you live your life. Holiness is a command of God. It's not a suggestion. It's a demarcation of the Spirit's work in your life. If you're not living more holy now than you once were, then you need to take a look at your life and ask, where are you? Have you thwarted it? Have you talked yourself out of it? Have you just been pretending? Have you just been going through the motions? No, you should be progressing in your holiness. That's not a bad word. It's a Bible word. There's a kind of speech that isn't fitting for God's people. Obscenity, crude speech, coarse jesting shouldn't even be named among us, Ephesians says. Men should wear men's clothing and cut their hair like men. Women should wear women's clothing and cut their hair like women. So says 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's not the Old Testament. Men are commanded to love their wives unconditionally. Women are commanded to respect their husbands unconditionally. Well, he hadn't earned it. Yes, he has. God commanded it from you. Well, she hasn't earned my life. She's not been very lovable. doesn't matter. He's commanded it. Children are commanded to honor their parents unconditionally. There's one that all the younger folks here will love. So says Ephesians chapter 5. We're commanded to be a sober people. If you've consumed enough alcohol, you're no longer sober. You're not living the way God commands his New Testament saints to live. I don't care what your wonderful justification is. It's the same reason we're not weed smokers. Why? We are commanded to live sober. So says 1 Peter, 1 Thessalonians, Titus 2, and a million other passages, all of which you'll notice are in the New 
Testament. Had a student, we had this conversation like a week ago, one of the students in my class. This happens every year, three or four times a year I'll have a student say this. Wilson, how can you be upset, though, about weed? It's natural. So that's brilliant. You know what else is natural? Cyanide, strychnine, arsenic. Take a dose. Let me know how it goes for you. Why? Because God has commanded us to live sober. If I'm not sober, I will not perceive the world around me the, the right way. I won't make the right kinds of decisions. Furthermore, I mean, just be honest with you, like, that's not, not the pictures I want in my children's mind of me when they get older. We're commanded to dress and act with modesty in mind. There are lots of these. There are commands in the New Testament. And they are, in fact, commands to holy living. And Jesus goes on to say, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's not legalism. That's a call to a life that honors God. All right. I'd like to spend, I I could preach an entire sermon just on that. Because we live in a culture that hates holiness. But it's not going out of style. Part of living with the Lord. Jacob understands what a serious and potentially dangerous thing it is to draw near to God. And so he commands all of his household to put away the foreign gods and to purify themselves. By the way, you'll notice that taking up earrings was part of that. Let me kind of explain that. In those days, people would dress their idols up. Even to the point of putting earrings on the idols. Earrings, chains, little insignias. They would take like two earrings and they would put one on the idol... And they would put one on themselves. If they put it on the right ear on the idol, they put it on their right ear. It was a way for them to show everybody I'm devoted to this idol. They would dress their idols up. And then they would imitate their idols in the way that the idols were dressed and the jewelry there were. Boy, I'm glad none of us ever do that today, huh? Humans have come so far in all those years, huh? We don't still imitate our idols today, do we? That's why Jacob's taking up the earrings. I mean, those are pieces of devotion. Like having a, a necklace, right, with a, a design on it that's an insignia of their devotion to a foreign god. And Jacob's saying, no, g- give me all of those, give me all of those. We're going to bury them. It's a big deal. This chapter has a lot of burial. Later on, we're going to see... Three other burials. There's actually four burials in this chapter alone. But this is the first burial. The first burial is Jacob taking up all of the stuff that is associated with idolatry and saying, it's done. We're putting it under the ground, under this tree. Why under this tree? Because it won't take very long before this stuff is mixed up with the roots down here. Basically, it's destroyed. How do I get rid of it? It's also very easy to see if someone tried to go back and dig it back up. You can see that the soil's been disturbed. Kind of a way to check on that. Let's go on. Verse 5. So as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that those cities did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, Because their God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. El 
Bethel, the God of the house of God. That's what that means. Demonstration number two, your devotion to God is demonstrated through your obedience to Him. Not just your holiness, but your obedience. I don't really know if you can separate those two, to be quite frank. Jacob received the commandment in verse 1, and immediately he goes to his family, tells them, purify themselves. In verse 5, after they've purified themselves and made themselves ready for worship, what does Jacob do? He obeys the Lord's command to a T. He does exactly what God told him to do. Your devotion to God is demonstrated through your obedience to God. How exactly should we be obeying the commands of God? Completely and immediately. Partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The commands of God are to be obeyed completely and immediately. That's one of the wonderful and terrifying things that the Holy Spirit does to us. When we are doing something that's disobedient to God, you know what the Holy Spirit will do? He'll convict us of sin. That's exactly what Jesus said he would do. And you'll have a choice. When you're convicted of that sin, you can do one of two things. You can either repent of that sin that you love because you want to draw closer to the God that you know. Or you can decide to justify your sin so that you can draw close to that sin you love. You will deny the God you know. You know what the other terrifying thing about sin is? If you were here this morning for equipping hour, you heard about this. It hardens you. When you sin and God convicts you, and you decide, no, I'm not going to listen to you, God. I like this sin. I like doing this sin. I'm unwilling to give up this sin. I will justify this sin in my heart. Well, the next time God convicts you of that same sin, you won't feel that conviction near as much. You know why? You're in the process of hardening your heart. The first time you do it, the conviction's like a stab with a knife. The next time, it's more like a pinch. But you keep justifying it. You keep saying, no, I'm not giving it up, God. Next time, it's a poke. The scary thing is, eventually, you don't feel anything at all. And it literally takes you being here under the ministry of the Word and the Spirit of God to wake you up from a hardened heart. And the good news is, if that's you today, this should be your wake-up call. So what is it that God has commanded Jacob? Jacob goes the whole way. He goes the whole nine yards. He does everything the Lord commands. What is it that the Lord has commanded? Build an altar. Why an altar? Because there's going to be sacrifice here. There's going to be worship and there's going to be sacrifice. Demonstration number three. Your devotion and faithfulness to God is demonstrated through your sacrifice. You know, a lot of times we talk so much about revival. We talk about how much we want to see people come to know the Lord. We want to see people come to repentance. As long as it doesn't cost us anything. You really want to see that person's heart changed? Yeah, cool. All right. You willing to spend three hours every Friday night praying for them? I don't know about that. Ah. So you want 
them, you want, you want to see their heart changed, you want to see them come to the Lord so long as it doesn't cost you anything, eh? That's us, guys. A lot of times, that's us. I've heard it said before, the church always has the amount of revival she truly loves. Because she always has the amount of revival she's willing to sacrifice for. The scary truth of the matter is, a lot of times, we're willing to serve the Lord just in as much as it doesn't inconvenience us. I'm willing to serve the Lord until it requires me to sacrifice some money. I'm willing to serve the Lord until it requires me to sacrifice some time. I'm willing to serve the Lord until it requires me to sacrifice some comfort and convenience. All of a sudden, I'm not sure. It's just, it's just not my ministry, brother. Okay. Your devotion to God is demonstrated through your sacrifice. Not only your holiness, not only your obedience, but also your sacrifice. Are you willing to honor God with all of your resources, all of your finances, your time, your effort? Jacob here sacrifices one-tenth of his possessions to the Lord. And notice something. His act of worship that God is saying, you're going to go all the way across the country and you're coming here to worship me, has nothing to do with singing slow songs. I mean, I'm sorry, but the truth is a lot of times we think that worship is just singing songs. And don't get me wrong, singing songs is obviously a part of worship. But he is not going up to this altar to sing slow songs and have a wonderful touch of of the Lord. Oh, i got to be a place where the lights are low so I can sing and just have an experience. That's not what Jacob's doing. Jacob's act of worship is about to be bloody. It's a sacrifice. And that's what God says is worship. Sometimes the worship of God is not just singing slow songs. I don't want to minimize singing songs. Obviously, songs are a very important part of worship. And that is echoed multiple times in the New Testament. I'm very thankful and grateful for the people here who are willing to lead in that ministry. But sometimes worship is a sacrifice too. I'd like to go on, but I'm just running out of time. I'll have to pick it up here. Let me close by saying this. If we are actually devoted to the Lord like we say we are, It will show in multiple areas of our lives. It will show in the holiness that we're willing to live. It will show in the obedience that we are willing to give to God. It will show in the sacrifices that we are willing to give. It will show in a lot of other areas as well. Next time we're going to talk about the memories and the remembrance. Our devotion to God is also shown in the things that we dig up from the past. What things are we willing to talk about? The memories and the remembrance of God. Do we tell a story where we're the victim? Do we tell a story where God's the hero? If we're really God's people, it should show in the way that we live our lives. It shows here in Jacob's life, and we are called to emulate that. Let's pray.
God, I ask you'd give us repentance. Far too often, Lord, we mock your commands of holiness rather than obeying them. Far too often, Lord, we sneer at obedience rather than just being obedient. Far too often we're not willing to sacrifice the way and things you've called us and asked us to sacrifice. Father, I ask it today you would rend our hearts, break our hearts. Let, let your words stick in our minds today, God. Let it be something that we deal with over and over. Convict us, Lord, in those places where we've had hard hearts. Open our hearts again. Break down that stony heart, God. Give us a heart of flesh that we can feel you and hear you again, Lord. And that we are attentive to what, what you've said and the things that you convict us of. God, let us live lives devoted and dedicated to you. We thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat>